What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, episode 23. Burn It All Down might not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. We have a very special episode today. I'm your host. I will be driving the proverbial bus today. This is Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress. Joining me is Shireen Ahmed, freelance sports reporter in Toronto, Canada, Brenda Elsie, associate professor of history at Hofstra, and Jessica Luther in Austin, Texas, who is also a freelance sports reporter and the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. As I said, we have a very special episode for you all today. First of all, Shireen is going to lead an interview and discussion with the brilliant Amira Rose Davis and Nicole Neverson. They are going to talk about Cam Newton's comments and also the racist tweets that were surfaced by Jordan Rodriguez, the reporter that Cam Newton made those sexist comments to. And they're going to discuss about the full intersectionality, both of the comments themselves the tweets themselves, and the reaction to both, which has been very interesting to follow. Then we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about Mental Health Awareness Week, which is the first week of October. So we're just a day late. It's fine. <laughs> it's just, we're, we're really good here. But all of us are going to talk a little bit about our experiences with mental health, as well as athletes that have inspired us in the way they handle mental health. And then I am going to interview Imani McGee-Stafford, a center for the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA, who has really become a mental health awareness advocate. And then we will have a burn pile, we will have a badass woman of the week, and we will finish on a happy note, talking about some positive things that are happening in our lives or in the world in general. So... Join us, why don't you? All right. First, Shireen, why don't you take it away with Amira Rose Davis and Nicole Neverson? I am so happy to be here with Dr. Nicole Neverson and Dr. Amira Rose Davis to unpack, critique, analyze, and possibly burn the events that unfolded last week around Cam Newton's sexist comments and then the revelation that sports reporter Jordan Rodrigue of the Charlotte Observer had tweeted racist comments between 2012-2013. To discuss this, I have two of the greatest minds in race and sport. Dr. Nicole Neverson is an associate professor of sociology at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. She teaches sociology of sport, media representation, and media research methods. Her research focuses on representation of subjectivities in the mass media, 
sociocultural aspects of sport and gender, and the use of force technologies and the representation of policing. She's currently working on a project that examines hashtag we the North of the Toronto Raptors NBA team and looks at how black bodies are used to represent Canadian identity in safe ways. Dr. Amir Rose Davis has been a guest on this show a few times before. She is an associate professor at Penn State University. Dr. Davis is a 20th century U.S. historian with a particular interest in race, gender, sports, and politics. She is working on her first book, Can't Eat a Medal, The Lives and Labors of Black Women Athletes in the Age of Jim Crow, which traces a long history of black women's athletic labor and symbolic representation in the United States. And I can't wait to get my hands on that book. Thank you so much for being here, both of you, and having this conversation. Thank you. So it was good to be back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right into this. And I'm going to start with you, Nicole. What, if any, was your take last week? And did the situation with Cam Newton change at all when it was revealed that Jordan Rodriguez had tweeted racist comments in the past? And if so, how? Well, you know, I think the Cam Newton situation itself is interesting because the story itself was very hard to pin down. When we sort of look at his comments made in interviews, at least the way that I consumed them and was able to first see them, it's always through multiple filters, different people's takes on what he said. So I was able to see a few sound bites, read a few opinion pieces about what he had said, And I think at the end of the day, what has happened with the Cam Newton situation actually isn't a Cam Newton situation. It is a situation of sexism. Sexism, broadly speaking, that is still infused in pretty much many parts of sports culture. Now, getting back to the issue of the journalist who asked the question about players running groups, one thing that I've observed is that it seems that people are incapable of talking about more than one issue of oppression at the same time. (laughs) So the issue is here, what I've noticed is, okay, we can't talk about the sexism because we have to talk about the racism and we don't really have the tools or the language to talk about both. So those are sort of my initial reactions to the comments made by Cam Newton. Amira? I think that's a brilliant take because that's essentially what I landed on as well. The fact that we are very, and I'm using we here, but I will say in a minute that I think the people who bear the brunt of this tend to be women of color. Because I think in general what happens is we're ill-equipped to have the language to talk about multiple and intersecting oppressions at the same time. And there's a way that intersectionality is now in the mainstream, right? It's a word that I've seen on a million hot takes, but in practice, it's not something that is as easily applied. And in the sense of the oppression Olympics or these kind of competing subjectivities where all of a sudden, you know, it becomes pitting one above the other or conversations that can't be had at the same time, despite the fact that they're intertwined from the get-go. Even before Jordan's comments were found, there was racialized comments coming at Cam that needed to be analyzed. And I think that 
it infuriated me because again, I was left feeling, especially for women in color in a space like sports, just this kind of searing rage at the inability to do this because who it silences and who it harms the most, in my opinion, are women of color who are there talking about both issues simultaneously and also bearing the burden of both simultaneously. And I think if I can jump in here, I am nodding you know, furiously, both of you were talking, the idea that we need to speak about both and we can. And with nuance is just that it's almost like if you have one, you just focus on the one and you can't address the other when there are two conversations to be had. And I think the other thing that's important is that all women, many in my experience in media, many women feel that because they're women, they're equipped to deal with a conversation on race when they can't, particularly not like women that are not women of color. And that's also problematic equally. Like, and do you, how would you respond to those who are saying, and do you think it's all, is there a space then for white women or white folks to actually participate in the conversation? I think that the question or the appropriate response to that question is, this isn't necessarily about excluding your voice or excluding your participation in a conversation. A conversation has many parts. Uh, people play many roles in bringing conversations to light and social change. So I think it's very important that we speak to the groups affected by these issues of oppression, these issues of marginality, first and foremost, because they experience it. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a very, how should I say, expressing who you are, talking about your identities, seems to be taken as something that is talking about the personal and therefore no longer objective. We have to get over that viewpoint of going to experts and people who live the realities of these issues as being something that is subjective and how should we say, not important to valuable conversations. In fact, we have to bring that expertise, bring those experiences to the focal point in order to even start having a conversation about how to dismantle, how to challenge, how to resist the very oppression that we all, all right, are experiencing. So your question about whether white reporters should be brought into this conversation, I would say there's a role for you to play in the movement. Sometimes having a conversation means centering people whose knowledge comes from experience before opening your mouth. So opening your ears is a lot more powerful than trying to have a conversation about issues that perhaps you have not experienced from those very positions of marginality. Yeah, and I would just say also this is a way where we see, you know, the structural aspects really come to the forefront is that also women of color in sports media often have less large platforms on which to speak. So the very, you know, systems that make those numbers paltry, that make those voices more marginalized, right, then come around when we need to have a conversation about them and everybody again, it's like, where are these voices? And it's like, well, no, they're, they're here. They're here under the weight of these structures already. 
And I think that that was, for me, one of the things. It was so great to see, you know, Katie Barnes's piece and, and, and some voices be amplified because um, the nuance, the embedded nuance necessary to have these conversations and treat them with the, the care and time that, that we need were those voices. I saw one of the most disheartening things for me in, in, in that moment was because we had this kind of first wave of conversation about sexism followed by the revelation about race. And I, and I will just take a moment to say, kind of piggyback what I said before, I think that there was a lot of people who were crying about sexism, but using that more because they wanted to have a battering ram for Cam. And that has much less to do about their desire to eradicate misogyny or their, or their issue with, with sexism and more because Cam has a target on his back in, in, in many spaces. And a lot of that is racialized. And I think you can see that in some initial co- comments that wanted to very easily call him a thug or bring up the stealing of the laptop or, or using kind of racialized language already in that conversation. And so it was already in play it was already intersecting in the conversation about sexism in a way that, you know, I think Bomani tweeted right when it broke, like this is going to get very messy and very layered very fast. And I definitely agreed with that. But the thing that happened that with the revelation of the tweets in particular is men of color also were able to derail the conversation because they were rightly calling out the racism at play, but using it as a way to say, I saw tweets that said, I wonder if all the feminists, so-called feminists who care about this said anything about Colin not playing. Well, yes, if the people you're looking at are women of color, they have been doing that. And that's essential. And the fact that correctly labeling and identifying and talking about the issue of racism at play was effectively also used as a way to move the conversation away from sexism within the industry that was also necessary and also needed to be had. And that that was really very frustrating. For me, Katie Barnes' piece was the last thing I wanted to read about this. Their piece was so strong and it really, I'm just going to read a quick bit of it for those who haven't seen it and we'll link it in the show notes. They write, experiencing oppression is an escapable abyss that can swallow us whole. The weight of sexism, racism, classism, ableism, homophobia, and transphobia, and how they intersect is not something that can just be unburdened. It is constant. The pain these experiences can cause never quite heals. We stitch ourselves together, but there will always come a time when those wounds are ripped open and our pain pours from our hearts. And that's quoting Katie Barnes of ESPNW. I think for me as well, there was a lot of, and, and, and I'll be very candid, was there was a piece by, I think it was Annie Heilbrunn for the San Diego Tribune, which was, you know, addressing her own biases. And I think that's important. What I sort of feel ended up happening, and maybe Nicole, you can respond to this, it ended up being this barrage of white women writing about why they were angry than they felt bad. And it was like this, how we were formed as white women. And that ended up taking up a lot of space. And in my opinion, too much space. (laughs) Because as Amira said, they have more of a platform. So are those kind of pieces different than the other as opposed to the analysis, the whole narrative of 
I was wrong and now I see why I was wrong. Like, is that not okay too? Like, should we welcome those as well? Aren't those beneficial? The thing about that is that's going to appease certain parts of the audience. First and foremost, it appeases the person writing it. And then perhaps it appeases the people who might be paying that person and quite possibly some of the readership. The problem with those types of contributions is that they gloss over what the issue is. The issue is looking at what has happened, not just as something related to sexism, not as just something that's related to racism and a whole heap of other marginality and oppression as well. So the problems with writing a piece like that, that essentially says, don't blame me, I feel bad, this is terrible, I'm good in the world, don't put this on my shoulders, is that what it does is it stops the conversation. And it says, your beefs or what your grievances are, aren't important anymore, because guess what? I'm kind of owning up to something being wrong here, but I actually don't want to have to expose myself my thoughts, my behaviors, my actions, my prejudices, the ways that I look at the world for you, because A, that's too much, it hurts too much, or B, I'm completely clueless about it. So in some ways, columns like that, contributions like that actually do more damage. And it actually goes back to the sentiments that you just read us in that quote. Mm -hmm. Amira? It makes me think, you know, I write about Black women in sports history. And one of the things that happens a lot of the times in my work is by centering it on the experiences of Black women, whether it's the baseball women I write about, whether it's the women Olympians that I write about, what happens is centering it on their experiences also makes the people around them, particularly Black men in this case, not look the same way they might in other histories. So the black women I write about in baseball, some of the black sports writers that were integral to the integration of Major League Baseball, and we revered for that, look like sexist, because they are. And the men that we love for taking a stand and say 68 look different if centered on the women experiences of black women. We think about their exclusion from protests at that time. And it makes people uncomfortable because people don't know what to do with, right? Or don't want to consider the implications of somebody that we've narratively built up as having flaws. But the thing is people are human and they are not living in a different world where these structures aren't operating. And Again, these are how we have to have these layered, nuanced conversations. We can say that Black sports writers like Sam Lacey and Doc Young and Wendell Smith were forefront on using their platforms to fight for racial integration or racial justice or equality. We also must recognize that they were very great at amplifying Black women athletes as long as they were you know, participating against white women. When I, the baseball women I write about play with Black men in the Negro Leagues, the tune changes quite, quite fast. And that talks about the experiences of those Black women, those structures that are being reaffirmed within those spaces. And we see it with 
than 68. And I think it's a conversation that we'll continue to have, especially coming up on the anniversary of the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, where the black women Olympians that I write about and that I've talked to, you know, talk about feelings of exclusion. And since fourth, you have Harry Edwards and John Carlos and, and everybody say, yeah, we've messed up. We should have included them. And yet there's still a way that we're continuing to render them invisible now that uh, easy apology doesn't fix. Yeah, I think I just want to jump in there too. I mean, Shireen, what Amira said is just on point. We can sort of look at this and the role of many Black women, African-American women, marginalized women or racialized women. Look at what Mm -hmm. sort of been happening in the WNBA for many years. Mm-hmm. The WNBA has been dealing with these issues of intersectionality for a while, yet they don't really get, how should we say, the accolades or the attention. No one really is valuing what that league has gone through mm-hmm. and what they currently go through dealing with these issues. And here we have Black women mm-hmm. actually at the forefront of dealing with these very issues in sports. But because they play the women's game, many in the media aren't giving them the attention they deserve as being sort of kind of like those trailblazers for these nuanced conversations about what social justice means, what it means to kneel when the anthem is on, what it means to say that, yes, I play this game, but I also have this very nuanced way of thinking about the country in which I play it in, et cetera, et cetera. So I also look at what Amira is saying as sort of sidelining the experiences, the struggles of Black female athletes as well in looking at these social justice issues. I can't thank you both enough for your time and doing this for us and having this conversation and bringing to points that are so important, but it were not necessarily easy for everyone to connect and to be able to do that for us. We appreciate it tenfold and look forward to having you back again on Burn It All Down. We're huge fans of your work. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you, Nicole. Yes, thank you, Amira. Thank you, Shireen, for having us. All right. Welcome back, everyone. So it is, as we said, the first week in October was Mental Health Awareness Week. I thought I have to say that behind the scenes here at Burn It All Down, mental health and our managing of mental health is a discussion that we have personally a lot. I know that I've been really inspired both by talking to other people in the business, by talking to friends, and by talking to athletes and reading about athletes who are open about their mental health struggles. So we're just going to start by having just a discussion just between us. Jessica, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I do. And I want to talk about an athlete and a piece that has meant a lot to me over the last couple of years. In September of 2015, Marty Fish, who used to be a tennis player for the U.S., he wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune called The Weight, and we'll link to this. It was the day before what would be his last ever professional tennis match. That one played at the U.S. Open. And he had struggled in the previous years because of heart problems, but also anxiety attacks. And as he neared the end of his career, he began talking very openly about his mental health struggles. And so like the month before, in August of 2015, at the time that he announced he'd be retiring, he told the Washington Post, quote, I want people to know what I've gone through to be a role model and a success story for people that maybe struggle with mental illness and for people to remember my career in a positive light. 
So I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression in January of 2013, and I've spent many sessions in therapy in my life, decades of my life. I've been on and off meds. I am every day learning how to manage it all. And the Players' Tribune piece, it was Fish's first-person account of his own struggle with intense anxiety, and it just really meant something to me. There's such a loneliness to mental illness, as if you're the only one and your experience of it is yours alone. And there's like a constant self-questioning about whether what I, what you're experiencing is real or some drama that you've whipped up. And it feels so completely wrong when the worst, when you have the worst moments and when things are going really well for you. And so Fish discusses how the idea that I wasn't good enough was a powerful one. It made him, that idea, it made him better, but it also never let him rest. I related in a truly deep way to his trouble sleeping and not being able to sleep alone, like needing someone else there. Nighttime is always the worst time for an anxious brain. He describes his anxiety attack as a spiral, which is the word I've always used to explain how quickly I get from anxiety to depression and why it's so hard to stop it. And then before I pass the baton here, I just want to read a quote from the piece. It's It's towards the end. And Fish writes, quote, I am here to show weakness. And I am not ashamed. I'm going to to cry reading this, you guys. In fact, I'm writing this in a lot of ways for the express purpose of showing weakness. I'm writing this to tell people that weakness is okay. I'm here to tell people that it's normal and that strength ultimately comes in all sorts of forms. Addressing your mental health is strength. Talking about your mental health is strength. Seeking information and help and treatment is strength. So yes, this, all of this. Thank you, Marty Fish, for these words that I still think about over two years later. They make me feel seen, understood, less alone, and yes, stronger. So yeah, that's that's my athlete tie to all of this. That's incredible. I still think about that piece a lot too, Jess. And I, I have to say, I actually interviewed Marty Fish this summer. And one thing I asked him how he's doing with his mental health, and he was just as candid as he's always been, that he's doing better, but there it's not a magic, I'm better, I'm fixed, this is done. And I thought, wow, like you were so inspiring. But anyways, Marty Fish talked to me about how he had just gotten a job at ESPN, and he was working as a tennis commentator, and he'd actually just gotten back from Wimbledon. And he just talked about what a big deal that was to travel over there by himself to work all those days in a row and be able to show up at work all those days in a row and be able to work under that pressure and how much he really enjoyed it. And listen, that's something I can't obviously relate to working at ESPN every day, but it was, it was something powerful. All right, Brenda? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me because I've always struggled with anxiety and it's sort of contradictory because exercise is one of the ways that I feel better. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, sports is this place where athletes are under incredible stress, you know, elite athletes. And I think it really matters that a lot of them are supporting more than just themselves. So they feel extra pressure not to admit that they're having problems and to keep it very inside. I mean, a lot of the interviews with athletes are explaining that they're scared that if they come forward, that they're jeopardizing a career which provides for more than just themselves. So I feel for it. And it's such a contradiction to me because on the one hand, the experience at not an elite level, but just like a person, you know, struggling to keep an eight minute mile is that exercise in the gym is such a like wonderful positive space for my mental health and it's such it can be such a destructive space for some people so it's it's an interesting thing i remember just 
just about five years ago, the chief medical officer of the NCAA, Brian Hainline, declared mental health as the number one safety concern of the NCAA. Oh, wow. And he said that, and it's changed, you know, it's really caused a change, a shift to looking at mental health as part of the whole health of the student athlete. I think that's been really, really important because we know that participating in athletics helps particularly women who have, you know, low body image and low self-esteem. So they have body image issues and, and we know physiologically it helps them to adjust that body image. And yet, and yet, once again, you know, really elite NCAA gymnasts report how terrible their body image is and that they're feeling under the microscope. So it's a real pressurized situation. And it's, I think it's just a fascinating process. Shereen? One of my favorite athletes of all time is a Canadian, a former Olympian and Canadian athlete named Silken Lauman. She's an oars woman and she is a single scholar. I think she wrote doubles. I've always been unbelievably impressed with her. She had an accident, I think, eight weeks before she competed in Barcelona where she won bronze. She was currently number one and she pushed through. <laughs> and I think eight weeks later, she recovered in that time. She had like a skull go through her calf. And she recovered like her memoir is incredible. But in 2015, she started to talk about mental health issues. And my challenges and my struggles with depression and anxiety were diagnosed much later after I had children. And so she talks about being a mom and being a stepmom. She has a stepdaughter who's severely autistic. And she talks about how she was sort of trying to manage her own mental health when she didn't even know because she talks about this, that her own mother was had undiagnosed mental illness. But at that time, women could be institutionalized against their will without getting proper treatment in a way that was more holistically understanding. So Lauman's memoir was was incredible for me. And her speaking about her story is is really powerful. So I'm just going to read the small excerpt that came out and of her writing. This was for, it was on HuffPost and then CBC News picked it up and it was made a lot of headlines in Canada because she's such a formidable personality here. I knew how people might react. When I told my soon-to-be husband that I suffered from anxiety and depression, he looked at me with confusion. When I told him that I took a pill daily to keep my anxiety at bay, he looked a bit alarmed. What are you like without your pills, he asked sheepishly. I felt angry and frustrated, but I got it. Many people have no experience with mental illness. They don't understand that anxiety can be low-grade and persistent, and sometimes a person's liver isn't their best friend. I explained to him that an antidepressant didn't change my personality. It didn't make me any less. It simply lessened my feelings of anxiety and being overwhelmed. And for me, that was a lot of it because at times people were like, oh, well, you're so busy. Like you have a mom. I mean, you have parents that are aging or battling some type of illness or whatnot, or you're a mom of four kids. People were all making excuses. But finally, I got a doctor that said, we're not making excuses. Let's talk about how you're feeling. Let's talk about how we can manage this. And there's no shame in it because also being from a South Asian community, historically, there's a lot of shame around mental health issues. And in terms of saying that, because people always think, oh my God, she's crazy. Like, <laughs> And there's that's ableist and it's unfair. And for me to get someone who, like a, a primary care physician who understood how I felt and helped me, but I started reading about it 
and I got more strength from Silken Lauman and I actually tweeted it out when I got her book or I Instagrammed it and she liked it. And I was like, oh, yeah, she liked it. Because for me, that was very <laughs> affirming that her words, she was someone I looked up to for decades and her words meant so much to me and that feeling of her being honest about being overwhelmed and you feel my shoulders get physically heavy like I, it's hard to explain sometimes but her explaining that exact same feeling was just it was it was so important for me you guys are amazing <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to Shamik Holtzclaw, who is a former WNBA player who's been very open about her own struggles with mental illness and a lot of other bad stuff in her life. And excuse me, I'm all choked up already. There was a great piece by Allison Glock on ESPNW this week that we will link in the show notes. But what really struck out to me was the desire to make she talks about the desire to make everyone around you comfortable. So not talking openly about what you're going through, wanting everybody else to feel okay. And I'm just going to read this one excerpt. It says in 2006, Holtzclaw was rushed via ambulance to the hospital after swallowing several pills. She survived, but kept the suicide attempt largely private. The official story was she was sick and dehydrated. Page says the team told media that Holtzclaw was out to take care of a family matter. Months later, Paige was one of the few peers to whom Holdsclaw confided. She said she kept it from me because she didn't want it to be a burden. Even after trying to end her life, Holdsclaw believed she owed it to her grandmother, her teammates, her coaches, everyone who banked on her to keep up the facade. I didn't want to want to seem weak in anyone's eyes, she said. I put this cloak around me. I related to that strongly because I have battled depression, anxiety, and ADHD, a really fun cocktail, my entire life. I've literally lost, I believe, years in my 20s because the depression just kind of consumed me. And now I'm 31 and I'm as functional, as as mentally healthy as I've ever been. And yet there are still many days where it's a struggle to get out of bed. And during these times, I really find myself distancing myself from those close to me. And it's really a lot of times it's because I'm afraid that once I get on the phone with them, I'm not going to be able to keep up the facade. (laughs) Like I'm going to break down and I'm going to have to tell them because these are people I love so much. And it's so hard to let people in because there's no easy fix. I'm on medication. I do go to therapy and I am, like I said, on a day-to-day basis better than I've ever been. And yet there's still a lot of a lot of hard times for sure. So one of the things I want to keep doing and one of the reasons I wanted us to have this conversation is because I just believe so much in the power of talking about it and of being open and of getting rid of that stigma. And I think that leads me into the next interview that I did with Amani, who has done more than her fair share to share her experience and to help in that stigma. All right. Hello, everyone. I am here with Imani McGee-Stafford, the 10th overall pick in the 2016 WNBA draft, Texas Longhorn superstar. Currently, this season was the center for the Atlanta Dream and began the year as the center for the Chicago Sky. WNBA great. 
Amani is actually in Portland right now where she is trading or is it actually Oregon, just Oregon, I believe, <laughs> where she is yeah, training. I'm like three hours from Portland. <laughs> yes. So not at all Portland. I was wrong. But she is training with her Chinese team, but she's about to go overseas. So she is talking with us from the outlet malls and we really appreciate her time. Amani, I'm just gonna gonna dive right into it. You have been for the last few years so open about your story. You are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. You've been open about your struggles with depression and also, you know, that you that your suicide attempts and your the times that you've pondered ending your life. Why have you decided to be so open about these things in your life? And what is the hardest part about being so open? I think for me, I decided to tell my story kind of on a whim. I didn't think it would become as big as it was. It was started with just being like Longhorn Network, which is our local TV station in Texas. And then ESPN picked it up and then it was running on Center, and it kind of just became much bigger than me. But I was like 18, 19, very much discovering myself and who I wanted to be. And I kind of wanted to be the person I needed when I was younger. I grew up in a very what happens in our household stays in our household type house. So I was just sick of being quiet and sick of feeling so isolated. And the first time I performed a poem about my abuse, my teammates, like stepmother came up to me and was like, Oh my God, you just told my life story. And I've never told a soul. And that kind of solidified it for me. Like people being able to resonate with me and so many people having the same story as me. That it's not, you're not alone, even though you feel so alone when you're going through that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the hardest part is when you choose to live your live your life kind of in the public sphere or give people that access to you. Sometimes you forget that you're still that you're not amazing, like you're not a hero and you have to kind of take care of yourself. Like I've been I've kind of gone through a lot this past couple of months. I Like you have noticed the name change. And I kind of just had to take a step back and kind of take care of myself. Like I'm so I'm always like giving so much to other people and speaking about my abuse and and speaking about what I've been through and kind of being an advocate that sometimes like I forget that I'm still living this life. I'm still very much dealing with my own mental health issues and my own day to day life. And I think when we're telling stories about this and the media is as you know, complacent and pushes this as much as anything. Look, we like stories with the beginning, middle and end, and we like happy endings. So you like to tell the tale of someone who has, you know, comes from a a bad past and has really struggled, but now everything's fine. Everything's perfect. They're great. They're fine. But that's not the way real life works. And as somebody who suffers from depression, that is certainly not the way depression works. You know, it is a day to day, you know, day in, day out. Thing that you have to deal with. What are some of the ways that you take care of yourself on a day-to-day basis? And how do you manage those highs and lows that just come with being a human being? I think one of the biggest things I've learned just kind of through therapy and over the years are what my triggers are. I can kind of tell when I'm getting too low and when things aren't right with myself and my own mental health. And I think one of the biggest things for me was learning that it is a day-to-day process, that I can go six months and be great and then crash or a year and be great and then crash and not seeing that as a failure, but just kind of a part of who I am. Because in college, I got on antidepressants and then I got off my antidepressants and I did really well for a couple of years and then I just crashed. And I felt so like defeated, like, wow, you've done all this and now here we are back in square one and, and acknowledging that 
depression does not make me, but it is a part of who I am and I'll have to manage it for the rest of my life. And that's okay. That's not, that doesn't mean that I'm a failure or I'm less than a person or I'm broken in some way. It's just who I am. It's just a part of my story. Absolutely. I mean, you've been so open. And so that means that a lot of your teammates and a lot of your coaches and a lot of people you interact with on a day-to-day basis probably know your story, even though you haven't personally told them. How do you manage that dynamic? And has it led to, has it facilitated getting closer with some of your teammates and coaches? Or do you feel like sometimes it's the elephant in the room? I think it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. (laughs) (laughs) My college coach, she kind of had a similar background. So it made us much closer off the court. And I was really tight with her. And I am to this day just because of that. While on the other hand, like when I meet new people, I'm kind of like, don't Google me. (laughs) 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 You want to know something like just add. So I I think it's just it's an interesting feeling when you walk into a room and you're like, wow, you know everything about me. But it's a, it's a choice I made, you know, and I and I, I think it's so much bigger than me. So even every time I kind of get nervous or I feel like, wow, I wish I could take it back. It makes sense. You know, like somebody will reach out to me like, wow, I just shared a story with my daughter. She's been going through the same things. Thank you so much. Or somebody that, I, that I've known my entire life will share their story with me that I did not even know existed. You know what I mean? So it's so much bigger than me. Like, I think my purpose and the reason I have this platform given to me by basketball is to talk about these things on the national scale because until we continue to have these conversations and it isn't so taboo and we don't feel so naked sharing our truths like this, it's going to keep happening. Right. How do you deal with this and also your basketball career? Basketball, you're you're so under the microscope and you coming from such a, you know, with your mom being a star and your brother being a basketball star, you've had that microscope on you for years. But even in the WNBA, I mean, it's it's you've got to perform on a day in day out basis. You know, there are people watching you and grading you and 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 judging you on a day in day out basis. And I am someone who that the thought of that terrifies me. And I think that would be very (laughs) triggering to me. There's a reason I sit behind the computer. (laughs) But does basketball help you deal? Or is it sometimes, has it ever kind of make things worse? Does it ever kind of get in the way of your recovery? Um, There's a point in my life where basketball definitely made things worse. I almost quit in college, like a lot. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it was at one point where I had already found a job that could help me pay for my tuition. Like, I was about to meet with the AD and I told my coach, like, I'm done. And at the time, I was severely depressed, and basketball kind of just amplified everything. And I think the moment I realized that I will always be a better human than I am an athlete, everything became so much easier. Because in high school, basketball was my escape. Like, I loved it. Like, I could just go on the court and nothing mattered. Like, it didn't matter what I did last night. It didn't matter what did or did not happen. It didn't matter what my name was. Like, I just got to play. And that's why I love basketball. But when you get the higher you get, the more stakes become involved. You know, like, the more people care about everything it more becomes more of a job and then at one point it becomes my job right so removing my own personal like self from basketball and acknowledging like at the end of the day Imani is a good person whether I scored 20 tonight or five tonight at the end of the day this does not change who I am as a human that made it a lot easier I know it's tough because you are so much your story your story follows you and and like you said that 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 inspires a lot of people. It helps a lot of people. There's a lot of good with that. But a lot of people don't know you really beyond the story. What would you like people to know about you, either as a basketball player or just a person? I think the biggest thing I want people to know about me, that's such a tough question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. I think that I'm still growing and I'm still learning and I've done something probably different than most people where I've kind of opened myself up at a young age. And I always say like, I'm a 35 year old on the inside because I've lived so much life, <laughs> but I'm really like about to be 23. Like, oh my God, you're so and young. I don't know. So I've kind of just allowed people to see me stumble and bump my head and do amazing things and sometimes not so amazing things in the public sphere. But I think that if anything you take from me, I hope that she'll share a little bit of your truth because you never know like what stories you have that someone needs to hear. And like, that's my goal is that people will see me kind of living authentically in my own skin, be it amazing one day or terrible the next day. But at the end of the day, authentically Imani and feel like, wow, I can do that too. Like I want to be who I am. Like, I think we just have to move past the point where we all want to be so perfect and have this mask on and interact with each other because that's what makes it so hard that's what makes us want to be so isolated that's what makes us keep everything inside god that's so powerful finishing up i know this WNBA season was a weird one for you what are your biggest takeaways from this season and you know finishing things up in atlanta and and what are your goals basketball wise for the next year i had very high goals for myself coming into this season and i did not accomplish them so I mean, I think you just got to keep staying hungry and keep working regardless of, like, never get comfortable. That's probably the biggest thing I learned this year. Just never get comfortable. Well, listen, Amani, thank you so, so much. We wish you all the best in China and are looking forward to cheering you on in the States again next summer. And thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you for having me. Moving now to the burn pile. I am in the mood to burn some things. Shereen, you want to kick us off? Absolutely. I got a message yesterday about a sport that I am really excited to hopefully write about one day, roller derby. A lot of people don't know this, but the World Fast Track Roller Derby Association was one of the first sport federations to actually come out and speak publicly and make a statement when Trump came out with a Muslim slash travel ban last year. They actually changed one of their competitions because some of their players in Europe were former refugees. So and coming from countries that were named. So they were very, very quick to advocate and protect for their athletes. Anyway, Iran's roller derby team were forced to change their name to from Iran to IRN, and in my summary, just because the world's big and ridiculous, but they posted a note on Facebook in their page, and I will actually just read a quick snippet to you all, and it says, and we, it is with reluctance, and after much team discussion, we have decided to change the name of Team Iran to Team IRN. It has come to our attention that due to our political climate, the word Iran is still being considered a red flag. Our fundraisers have been shut down repeatedly due to economic sanctions. Our financial statements have been endlessly requested to ensure the money we raise isn't being funneled back into Iran, and even our World Cup registration payments were blocked by banks because Iran triggered algorithms designed to identify suspicious persons and associations. We always knew that forming a new team, particularly the Middle Eastern one, was going to be a challenge. Unfortunately, we did not anticipate the extent of these challenges, oh, but we will continue to overcome these obstacles one by one, and we will make it to the World Cup. So I am rooting for them, and I'm also wanting to burn the fact that these are women in what is one of a possibly incredibly intersectional sport, a sport that is 
unbelievably open to different communities around the world. It's being opened up. And these women are having, these are women of color, Muslim women of color for the most part, that are having to battle this constantly. And for them, people are like, oh, sports on political. This is inherently political. They're being blocked and their funding is getting affected and they need to make this tournament. And I really hope it happens. And so I just want to burn down those places that shut down opportunities for women in the face. Burn it down. All right. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, a lawsuit that's happening. I just read you the headline that I wrote this week. NYPD cop who tackled and wrongfully arrested James Blake sues James Blake for defamation. Yes. Yes. You heard that right. (laughs) In this lawsuit, the cop, Frascatore, which is, of course, his name. I don't know. It just sounds like the, I don't know, it just sounds very stereotypical. I mean, not stereotypical, but like, I would write that as a cop's name. Like, I just love that name. But anyways, Frascatori says that during the media appearances this summer, while Blake was promoting his new book, Ways of Grace, which side note, wonderful, everyone should read it. Blake libeled, slandered and defamed Frascatori by repeatedly characterizing the officer as quote, a racist and a goon. Frascatori adds that by portraying him as a racist, Blake and other NYC agencies have intentionally discriminated against the officer on the basis of race. Now, (laughs) I would like to remind you that a couple of years ago, James Blake was, who is an African-American former tennis champion, was leaning against his hotel wall, casually like checking his phone as he waited for his cab to take him to the U.S. Open. And all of a sudden, this plainclothes officer ran at him, did not identify himself as an officer, grabbed Blake, tackled him to the ground and handcuffed him. Now, turned out this was a case of mistaken identity. Blake, an African-American man, looked very similar to the suspect that they were going after. Of course. Of course he did. (laughs) And, you know, it was all settled. But Blake has been fighting this and he actually set up a wonderful scholarship. So instead of really going after the NYPD for money, he he has urged them to set up a fund that will look into incidents of race cops and police brutality, which is just incredible. Like he is really working hard to make change. And that officer has the gall to, to sue Blake, saying that he is the actual victim of racism. I would like to burn it. Burn. Burn. Just. Sure. So the Courier Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, had a report this week that began this way, quote, when University of Louisville athletic director Tom Jurich announced a new deal with athletic apparel giant Adidas on August 25th, a reporter asked him if some of the proceeds would be shared with the university. It's for the athletic department, Jurich replied. It's for these student athletes. It's been earmarked for them. In fact, under the current deal with Adidas, which expires July 1st, 98%, 98% of the cash provided by Adidas goes to one person, Whoa. Rick Pitino, the now suspended head coach. LOL, college sports are so gross. The Courier Journal went on, quote, in 2015-2016, for example, $1.5 million went to Patino under his personal services agreement with the apparel company, while just 25000 went to the program, according to a contract obtained by the Courier Journal under the State Public Records Act. The year before, Patino also got $1.5 million, while the department banked just $10,000. It's wild. 
and also totally unsurprising to me that no matter how much we learn about the corruption and money-making collegiate sports and the exploitation of the labor of student-athletes to line the pockets of athletic administrators and coaches, nothing ever seems to change. The blatant hypocrisy of how this all works is comic book villain levels. And yet, we know that Patino, making bank off this apparel deal that would have gotten a player banned from collegiate play and ruined their life, won't make a damn difference in the end. Everyone will shrug, say coaches will be coaches, and the cycle will continue. Burn it all. Burn. 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 Torch it. <laughs> Brenda, you want to finish this up? Yeah, I'm going to pull my jaw off the floor. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how I, I never cease to be shocked. It's, it, you know, it's, it's over and yeah. over. Okay. What am I going to burn? I wrote an article on a soccer player from Chile. He also plays for Arsenal. His name is Alexis Sanchez. For those of you not Yay! super into global soccer. Yay! And for me is the best player of all time in Chilean history. All love to Ivan Zamorano. <laughs> and it, yeah, in, in any case, this article was a discussion of the media's obsession with establishing Alexis's heterosexuality over and over and over again to the extent that it can be hour long features on his romantic announcements of having a new girlfriend holy moly yeah (laughs) the article is a think piece on how misogyny and homophobia work together in soccer like what does it say about the state of women in sports media in chile and why you know it's important to remember that chile is leading the world in fines for homophobic behavior at matches So that's, you know, that's part of the impetus of the piece. Two newspapers contacted me immediately for an interview. And question number one was, do you think Alexis Sanchez is gay? (laughs) The entire point of the article is both substantiated and misunderstood in the exact same moment. So I know it's an indie magazine. It's called De Cabeza. Many of you don't read Spanish, but you should check it out anyway. I want to burn the reaction to the piece, not only misunderstanding my criticism of that with my actual questioning of a person's sexuality and the Facebook comments that attack me personally, suggesting that if I had a real man in my life, I'd stop asking these kind of questions. So I would, please don't read the comments. Don't go to Dacobase's Facebook page. It was it was not Arsenal supporters who did this though, right? I don't know how many Arsenal supporters read Spanish. Okay. Quite frankly, so I, I would p- place the impetus of this on the, the Chilean, some of the Chilean fans. I, I also got some great comments, but I'd like to burn the ones that attack me personally and question this man. All right. Is burn. 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 For sure. <laughs> that let's go to our badass woman of the week i'd like to finish here on a positive note i'd like to give an honorable mention to simona Halep, who made history this week as the 25th wta number one i'd also like to shout out morgan hurd the 16 year old american who won the world championship in gymnastics this week which is just incredible she did it against all odds we're going to link a great piece in the show notes from deadspin about her entire feat also like to lift up eight former players of the Brazil women's national team, including Cristiana and Franciela, as well as former World Cup stars Sissi, Rosana, and Formiga, who wrote an open letter to Brazil's Football Federation to protest and reiterate the need for women in coaching, decision-making, and power roles, of which, of course, there are currently none. And, drum roll, please, our badass woman of the week. 
is... Do we not have a sound effect for that? We're working on it, you guys. We've been busy. (laughs) It is Tiffany Green, the first black woman on ESPN to do play-by-play on a nationally televised college football game. You are a badass, Tiffany. All right, look. It has been quite a week. <laughs> Let's finish it up here with a really quick round of what's going good in our lives. Mm. I will start. I went apple picking yesterday with some friends, and then we went to a brewery, and it is 90 degrees. So I like to say we were apple picking in July, but it was still fun. And it was lovely to get out into nature and to – I didn't have cell phone service for a while, which was just so wonderful. So that was my what's good. Shireen? I am going to quickly say it's Thanksgiving long weekend in Canada, and I'm a huge fan of turkey generally, and we're not, my family is getting together, and I love this time because we're all off, and we're not recognizing any type of celebration that, you know, sort of applauds the genocide of Indigenous people, but we're having turkey and we're having family time. So that for me is massive, and I'm so excited about it. Amazing. Jess? Yeah, so yesterday I deadlifted 75 kilograms, which is about 165 oh, pounds, which is my oh personal, God. I know, right? Oh. It's my personal best by far, out, and I'm bro. preparing to participate in a deadlifting competition at my gym. Oh. I know, I know, and I'm going to do that in a couple of weeks. I'll be attempting 80 kilograms, which is 176 pounds that day, and I just want to say sort of to tie the bow on the discussion of mental health and bring it back to what Brenda said, my gym is my favorite place in Austin other than my house, and going to personal training there has really helped me stay sane literally over the last three years, so my deadlifting and my gym are what's good for me right now. Yay. That's awesome. Brenda? Yeah, this week I'm going to go see Naomi Klein at Hofstra. She comes Monday, October 9th. She's just written, No is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. And I really need somebody to tell me how to win the world we need. Yes. (laughs) Don't we all? All right. This was wonderful. Thank you all so much. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud. You can also hear it at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We really appreciate your reviews and feedback. We've gotten some great reviews on iTunes lately. Please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us so much. You can follow us on Twitter at BurnItDownPod. You can follow us on Facebook at BurnItAllDown. And our website is BurnItAllDownPod.com. And our email is BurnItAllDownPod at gmail.com. Whew, that's a lot. I know. But thank you for following with us. We still have a GoFundMe page going. If you can consider making a small donation, we'd really appreciate it. But most importantly, spread the word and come back next week. We all love and appreciate you so much. For Shireen Ahmed, Jessica Luther, and Brenda Elsie, I'm Lindsay Gibbs, and we'll see you next week. Hey!